When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 36, King Alfred Before He Was Great. It's probably no exaggeration to say that Alfred the Great is one of the most, if not the most, famous Anglo-Saxons of them all. The only British monarch given the epithet the Great The traditional account of his life is one of a scholar forced into the role of a war leader who defied the odds to save and unite not just his people, but all of the English. Indeed, Alfred is usually cast as the man who saved England, without whom all of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms would have fallen to Scandinavian invasion. However, it is not just for his military successes that Alfred is remembered. He was also celebrated as a wise king who cared deeply for law, religion, and learning. The revival of Latin and Old English learning that is called by scholars the Alfredian Renaissance is usually attributed to Alfred's vision of a just and pious English nation, which he sought to realise by gathering to himself the learned men of Britain, Ireland, and the continent. It's important always to be wary, though, of myth-making and the great man interpretation of history. While Alfred was without question a great leader, we must take a step back and look at his life with dispassionate eyes, so that we can cut through the layers of legend to reach the core of the man who saved England. So with this warning in mind, let's begin not with Alfred, but with the reason why we know so much about him. Alfred is certainly one of the Anglo-Saxon kings for whom we have the most complete biography. This is the case mainly thanks to the work of one man named Asa. Asa was a monk in, and possibly also bishop of, St. David's in the far southwest of Wales, in what was at the time the Kingdom of Duved. In about the year 885, he was invited to the court of King Alfred at Winchester, as part of the king's plan to revive learning among the English. Initially planning to divide his time between St. David's and Winchester, Asa probably became more and more enmeshed at court as his friendship with the king deepened and his role in his renaissance grew, but I'll say more about all of this in a future episode. In the year 893, Asa undertook to write a biography of King Alfred. The work he produced was titled The Vita Alfredi Regis Anglo-Saxonum, The Life of Alfred, King of the Anglo-Saxons. 
To produce this work, Asa used a copy of the newly written Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and added to it his own anecdotes and impressions derived from his conversations with the king. Why Asa decided to do this is unclear. We know from internal references in the text that Asa had read Einhard's Life of the Emperor Charlemagne, so it is tempting to suggest that he wanted to produce a comparable biography for his friend Alfred. Another suggestion is that he wrote it as a work of propaganda to send to his Welsh countrymen, who in 893 had recently submitted to Alfred's overlordship. That this was his motive can be inferred from the fact that he describes the geography of England in great detail, as if for readers unfamiliar with it. Also, when referring to English towns, Asser consistently gives first the English name and then the Britonic name, as if to help guide readers who spoke his own Welsh tongue. If this was Asser's intention, it seems that the work probably never fulfilled it, since its end is rather abrupt and without much fanfare, perhaps indicating that it was never completed, despite Asser living for a further 15 years after 893. The reliability of Asser's biography is a source of some contention. Debate still rages over whether it is an authentic work, since the only copy known to have survived to the early modern period was written around the year 1000, and all other Anglo-Saxon sources to quote from it all come from around that period. Some scholars have claimed that the work contains anachronisms, which mean that it cannot have been written in the late 9th century. For example, it is sometimes claimed that the title King of the Anglo-Saxons, which Asser employs, was not used until the 10th century. However, charter evidence survives from 892, in which Alfred is called the King of the Anglo-Saxons, suggesting that this title is in fact not anachronistic. Some doubt is still expressed from time to time, however the general consensus now is that the work was genuinely written by Asser. This case has been argued both by demolishing the arguments for forgery, such as the suggestion of anachronism, and by pointing out that many of the small details which Asser provides can be independently corroborated, something that a forger would never be able to achieve. Therefore, in my account of Alfred's life, I will use Asser's biography as one of my principal sources, although it is important to remember that it may have had a propagandistic aim, and should therefore be treated with some caution. Alfred, according to Asser, was born at the royal estate at Wantage in 848. Asser assures us that the young Alfred was the favourite of his parents, Athelwulf and Osber. While Asser's assurance that Alfred was superior to his brothers in every way should obviously be treated with suspicion, one consistent theme in his account of the young king's life is his interest in learning, and in particular in poetry. Although Alfred didn't learn to read until he was 12, he loved to listen to English poetry. One particularly interesting story has to do with a book of English poetry that Alfred's mother, Osber, would read to him and his brothers. One day she said to her sons that she would give the book to the first one who could memorise it and recite it to her. Alfred, enchanted by the decorated initial which began the book, vowed to win it, and succeeded in memorising it faster than his brothers. He probably had to do this by listening to the poems being recited, since we've already been told that Alfred didn't learn to read until he was 12, and Osber was dead by the time of Athelwulf's trip to Rome in 855, when his youngest son was about six years old. Regardless of how he memorised the book, Asser assures us that he did, and the author uses this anecdote as a gateway to focus on Alfred's love of learning. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle 
also reports that in 853, Alfred was sent to Rome to be anointed as king by Pope Leo IV. Later Victorian historians used this to suggest that Athelwolf always intended his youngest son to succeed him. However, this seems unlikely, since Athelwolf had so many sons, that selecting the youngest in this way seems extremely unwise. The ceremony seems to have been misinterpreted by later chroniclers, since in a letter Pope Leo refers to Alfred as having been made a consul, and probably this ceremony was the source of the useful fiction that Athelwolf secretly intended Alfred to be his heir. One other early event in Alfred's life is his marriage to a Mercian lady named Aylswith in 868. Not only is this yet more evidence for the close ties between Wessex and Mercia at this time, but it is on the occasion of his wedding that Asser tells us about another constant theme in Alfred's life, his mysterious illness. During his wedding celebrations, Alfred was seized with extreme pain, the cause of which no physicians at the time could diagnose. The cause is still hotly debated, but based on Asser's description, modern scholars have suggested that Alfred may have suffered from Crohn's disease, or even hemorrhoids. In fact, it was a condition that would come up again among his descendants. Asser says that he suffered from this pain day and night from his 20th year to his 45th, and that whenever he got some relief from it, he was so overcome with fear of its return that he was rendered completely useless. In fact, this is actually the second chronic illness from which Alfred suffered, at least according to Asser. After referring to the pain at the wedding feast, Asser offers us a quite strange story that may give some insight into Alfred's character, although it's not necessarily a very positive insight. Alfred, as presented by Asser, and indeed as suggested by other surviving writings from his reign, was deeply pious. Thus, when he was younger, he dedicated a great deal of time to religion. However, he struggled to overcome carnal thoughts, and in response, he began to pray for help in resisting temptation. In response, Alfred contracted hemorrhoids, which caused him so much pain that he was often bedridden. Asser claims, although make of it what you will, that once he was married and no longer needed to pray for chastity, his hemorrhoids went away. We can speculate, though, on whether the illness did in fact leave him, since the immense pain that Asser says he experienced from his wedding day on may also have been a result of hemorrhoids. Obviously, Asser presented all of this as a sign of Alfred's immense virtue, but today it doesn't really present him in such a positive light, since it's hard not to develop the opinion that Alfred may have ruined his health through his intense piety, and doubtless the intense penitential rigours that he inflicted upon himself. Either way, what for Asser was a sign of virtue, for a modern reader can strike us as, say, zealotry or morbidity, both traits that don't exactly present Alfred in the most positive of lights. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.
Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hello listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you're enjoying what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider you're using to listen to this, when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel, and when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and transcripts for as little as $3 a month. And speaking of patrons, I wanted to give a shout-out to Tracy Johnstone, Kent Clay and Kay Thomas, who recently became patrons. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you're enjoying the extra material you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. Little else is known about Alfred's life before the reign of his brother Ethelred. If you'll recall last episode... Alfred began to serve in a military capacity during Ethelred's reign, at a time when the great heathen army was upending the Anglo-Saxon status quo. The two brothers seem to have been at odds, probably due in part to Ethelred's fathering two sons, who he would not want to see overlooked for the throne. However, the king's sudden death in 871, when these sons were still infants, put a stop to any plans he may have had to freeze Alfred out of the succession. While Alfred was at his brother's funeral, the West Saxon army suffered yet another in a series of defeats from the Vikings encamped at Reading. Rushing to join the army after the funeral, Alfred suffered yet another defeat shortly thereafter, which forced him to come to terms with the invaders. Asa, in his account of the year 871, goes out of his way to justify this surrender, telling us that in that year, almost all of the West Saxon men had been killed due to frequent skirmishes with the Vikings. This is probably hyperbolic, of course, but it doesn't seem unreasonable to suggest that by late 871, the West Saxon army was undermanned and exhausted, which made surrender to the Danes' demands inevitable. The details of the terms that Alfred agreed with the Danes don't survive. Asa tells us that they included the Danes leaving Reading and retreating from Wessex, which they did. This was a common feature of Viking occupations. They would force a ruler to pay them to leave the kingdom, and although Asa doesn't say that Alfred paid the invaders, he almost certainly did, since the West Saxons were hardly in a position to force the Danes out of their kingdom. Just as similar policies had done in places like Mercia before this, Alfred's payment to the Danes succeeded in winning a few years' peace for Wessex. The next West Saxon engagement with the Vikings that Asa speaks of came in 875, when Alfred fought a naval battle against six longships, in which one was captured and the others fled. It's worth saying here that we know very little about Anglo-Saxon boats. Certainly, they were a naval people, their poetry is replete with allusions to the sea and to sailing, but boats have not survived from England in the way that they have in, say, Scandinavia. We obviously have some records of what royal boats were like from places like Sutton Hoo, but what the Anglo-Saxon navy looked like circa the late 870s is very difficult for us to say, since there is so little surviving archaeological evidence for it. Thus, 
we can't really say how well an Anglo-Saxon boat compared to a Viking longship. As the 875 episode indicates, they could certainly hold their own, but we can't really say much more than this. The year after this naval battle, so in 876, a Danish army again invaded Wessex, this time occupying the convent settlement of Wareham in Dorset. Alfred, probably because he lacked the power to expel them, or possibly because he was overcome with his disease, again chose to negotiate with the Danes. After exchanging hostages and getting the Danes to swear on holy relics that they would leave his kingdom, the invaders instead murdered the hostages and sailed west, where they occupied the city of Exeter. Here they stayed over the winter into 877, at which point Alfred put the city under siege, hoping to starve the Danes out. The Danes, meanwhile, awaited a relief fleet which would help them overcome the West Saxons. However, this fleet was wrecked in a storm. With no prospect of relief coming, the Danes then opted to negotiate with Alfred, again agreeing to leave Wessex, and this time actually doing so by retreating into Mercia. Thus far, Alfred had not exactly proved a bulwark against Viking attack. After 871, he seems to have only rarely engaged them in open battle, preferring instead to negotiate. Exactly why is unclear. Certainly the toll of 871 on the West Saxon army must have been great, but it was still formidable enough to keep the Danes holed up in Exeter, and afraid to engage in an open fight. It is possible that Alfred's reluctance to fight was also partly the result of his personal illness. But whatever the reason, Alfred's handling of the Danes in the 870s hardly suggested that he was on track to save England from the Scandinavians. His more gentle policy would come back to bite him later in the year, when, around midwinter, a force of Danes secretly advanced into Wessex and attacked the royal settlement of Chippenham. Taking the West Saxons completely by surprise, they killed many of the defenders, and would have killed Alfred if he had managed to escape with a few loyal retainers. Having driven the king out of his palace, the Danes then set about receiving the submission of various West Saxon nobles, as they had done in other kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England before. Alfred, meanwhile, went into hiding in the forests and swamps of southwest England, eventually establishing a hidden camp in the marshes of Athelney in Somerset. Calling to himself a small band of nobles and soldiers, Alfred set about organising a guerrilla campaign against the Danes. Asser tells us that part of this involved raiding the Danish camps and the estates of West Saxons who had submitted to Viking rule. In other words, Alfred became a terrorist, hoping to weaken the Danes' resolve and inspire his people to join him in a fight against them. This one glimmer of resistance aside, in 878, all of the kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England had fallen to the Danes, and all of their kings were either dead, as in Northumbria, or had fled into exile, as with Mercia and Wessex. Things were certainly looking grim. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, 
History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. It is from this period of Alfred's exile that we get one of the more famous stories about him. After a raid on the Danes, an exhausted Alfred found himself at the house of a peasant woman. Desperate for rest, he begged her for shelter. Not realising who this strange man was, the peasant woman invited him inside, provided that he helped her out. She asked that he keep an eye on some cakes that were cooking on the hearth. Versions differ from here. Some say that Alfred fell asleep, others that he was so preoccupied with the plight of his kingdom that he failed to notice when the cakes began to burn. Either way, when the woman returned and found the cakes well and truly burned to a crisp, she scolded the king for his idleness. It's a fun story, but it's almost certainly pure fiction. The earliest record of it comes from almost 300 years after Alfred lived, so it seems more likely to be one of the medieval legends that later chroniclers love to create. The story has clung on, though, because it's a funny one, and it's funny mainly at Alfred's expense. Despite our deep respect for the monarchy, us Brits also love to poke fun at the powerful, and who is more powerful as a cultural figure than Alfred the Great? In total, Alfred's exile lasted for only a few months. In May 878, probably after much secret communication among loyalists, Alfred emerged from the marshlands at a site on the border between Somerset and Wiltshire, where there stood a stone that was linked to his famous grandfather, Edgbert, called Edgbert Stone. Waiting for him were the raised fields of Somerset, Wiltshire, and parts of Hampshire. The king, who still clearly held the loyalty of the nobles of those shires, rallied his troops for the coming fight against the Danes. The Danes, having got wind of the army mustering in the west, sent a force to put down the rebellion. The two armies met at a place called Eddington, the exact location of which is lost. And there, Alfred made a defiant stand against the Danes. According to Asser's account, the battle was brutal, but finally the West Saxons managed to rout the Danes, who desperately fled back to Chippenham. Alfred was in hot pursuit, and surrounded the royal fort, where he proceeded to starve the Danes into submission across several days. Desperate for some relief, the Danes' leader, Guthrum, agreed to meet with Alfred at a place called Wedmore, where a truce was agreed between the two. The Danes were to leave Wessex, and Guthrum was to be baptised, with Alfred serving as his godfather. In this manner, a personal kinship was forged between the two men, which Alfred then repaid with several days of feasting and gift-giving at Chippenham, probably a way of saying, if you work with us, you'll get good things. Following this, Guthrum took his army into Mercia and from there went to East Anglia, where they proceeded to settle, and Guthrum set himself up as king. The Agreement of Wedmore in 878 
shouldn't be confused with the text known as the Treaty of Alfred and Guthrum. This text, which survives in both an Old English and a Latin version, served to set the boundaries between Alfred's kingdom and that established by Guthrum in East Anglia, as well as to establish both trading practices between the kingdoms and guild payments. The agreement reached at Wedmore, as described by Asser, contains none of this, and only seems to have been an agreement that Guthrum would be baptised and leave Wessex. Very probably, this agreement was only ever a verbal one and not a formal treaty. The actual treaty probably was only written some years later, perhaps around 880, but certainly before Guthrum died in 890. This later agreement also marked a fundamental shift in the relations between the West Saxons and the Mercians. By setting the boundary between Alfred's and Guthrum's realms as Watling Street, the Roman road which runs from the Thames up to Roxeter in Shropshire, Mercia was formally split into two, with the eastern half being given to Guthrum and the western half being given to Alfred. If you'll recall the final Mercian episode, King Chaelwulf II vanished from history around the year 879, to be replaced by a new man named Ethelred, who may have burned out Mercia's military ability with his wars in Wales, and who eventually would choose to become a vassal of King Alfred. Although the circumstances around why Ethelred made this decision are unclear, although it's not hard to imagine, if he saw the newly restored Alfred as a guardian against further Viking attack, the annexation of Western Mercia by Wessex was formalised with the treaty agreed between Alfred and Guthrum in around the early 880s. This treaty also is the first time we find Eastern and Northern England treated as specifically Scandinavian territory. It was not called the Dane Law until the late 10th century, but the idea of an English part of England and a Scandinavian part of England began in the Treaty of Alfred and Guthrum. So following the defeat of Guthrum, the history of England was changed permanently. Out of the hodgepodge of early kingdoms, only Wessex now survived. Not only did it survive, but it had absorbed old rivals and achieved a power that even Alfred's brothers could only have dreamed of wielding. But with this also came another key change. The Danes were no longer treated as just invaders. Their presence in eastern and northern England was now recognised by Alfred as an undeniable fact, and it was to remain a fact well into the 11th century, by which time it seems that northern England especially had developed essentially a hybrid Anglo-Scandinavian culture, which would forever shape the way that that region related to the rest of England. We'll see it more as we look at the smaller kingdoms, but the great heathen army had really obliterated the old order in England, and even if they had failed to overrun England as a whole, they had nevertheless permanently changed it and begun the process of English unification. Thus, although it's hard to tell if Alfred and others alive at the time realised that something had fundamentally changed in the course of English history, but with the defeat of Guthrum, something new was beginning. Think of the Danes in England as almost like a wildfire. They swept in and destroyed all of this old growth of tiny kingdoms stemming from the tribal identities that had come over during the advent of Saxonum, and now the field is swept clean for surviving entities such as Wessex to expand and solidify and really take over territory that had previously been inaccessible to them. It's for that reason that I'm going to take a break here with Alfred defeating Guthrum to go back 
and look at some of the old growth smaller kingdoms that existed really in the shadow of Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex. I think it's important to do that to really help give you a sense of the diversity that existed within England prior to the arrival of the Great Heathen Army and potentially spark off some inspiration for how things could have turned out differently if the Great Heathen Army hadn't arrived. We'll be back looking at Alfred eventually and considering how things developed from there, but I want really to give you an overview of all of Anglo-Saxon England, and that includes the parts and the kingdoms that didn't make it into the final unification, which, as you can probably tell, was most of them. It's going to be pretty interesting, and I hope you'll be here with me while we look through it all. But for now, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again next time. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.